Welcome to Behind the Headlines, the Friday news roundup from the Salt Lake Tribune and KCPW. Heard across the state on Utah Public Radio, I'm Roger McDonough. Today on the program, Representative Mia Love says the Federal Election Commission has cleared her of illegal fundraising. And she's calling on Democrat Ben McAdams to withdraw from the 4th District race. We'll find out why. Also, four women say the Salt Lake County District Attorney's Office didn't take up their sexual assault cases, and so they are turning to the state's Supreme Court for help. And the story of an unsolved murder from 1978 and what it might say about how cold cases are investigated today. Joining me for this conversation, Salt Lake Tribune Managing Editor Sheila McCann is here with us. Hi, Sheila, and welcome back. Good morning. Thank you. News and Politics Editor Dan Harry is here as well. Good morning, and welcome to you, Dan. Good morning. And news columnist Robert Gerke. Hi, Robert. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. Do you have questions or comments about Mia Love's fundraising or her call for Ben McAdams to drop out of the race? That's where we're starting today. You can call us uh, up at 801-355-8255 or post your questions or comments at sltrib.com. Again, the phone number is 801-355-TALK. Dan Harry, can you remind us uh, what the allegation was concerning Representative Mia Love's fundraising as she campaigns to retain her seat in Congress and where that uh, complaint about her fundraising came from? Well, originally, the FEC looked into it without a complaint. Okay. And the allegation was, well, it wasn't an allegation. It was a fact. She was raising money for a primary election that did not occur. And the reason that that is significant is you're limited on the amount of contributions you can give for each election. So the convention cycle counts as an election, the primary counts as an election, and the general election counts as an election. Each has a cap on donations. So the Love Campaign was raising money for a primary cycle, which would have allowed them ultimately to raise a lot more money from each individual and PAC, potentially. Uh, beyond the limits. So sidestepping those campaign limits, did did um, did that sidestepping happen? And, and how much money are we talking about in terms of the fundraising? Well, it happened to some degree. We don't know how much it happened. Uh, they refunded $29,000. Hmm. So that looks like at least that much overstepped it. And there was the potential for much more because if that had money had been left as primary, they could have raised more from those same sources for the general election. Representative Love pointed to past precedent, uh, an instance uh, very mm-hmm. similar to hers where the FEC said, you know, this exact thing that she did was okay. And this is Senator Mike Lee raising money for what, for a potential primary battle as well? Is that what was happening in that Yeah, case? They, and they say these circumstances were exactly the same. Actually, they weren't exactly the same. Mike Lee did have an inter-party challenger right up until just before the convention, and then that candidate withdrew. I don't even remember the person's name. It, not really a serious candidate, but at least had a challenger. And Mia Love, Mia Love never had a challenger in the Republican Party. So as of mid-March... When the filing deadline for candidates is over, it was clear she would never have a primary. She couldn't have a primary because no no one could have been recognized as a Republican candidate. She gets this letter from the FEC, and uh, she says that it clears her of any wrongdoing. What What does the letter say, Dan? The letter says that she can keep the money she raised before the convention, not after. So... Already there are $370,000 
that the campaign either had to refund or redesignate to a general election. So that she she had to take action on that. And the rest of the money, the money raised before the convention also had to be I think redesignated as general election. There's more of this story. Uh, yesterday, Representative Love, maybe it was the day before, no, I think it was yesterday, uh, in a radio interview said that Salt Lake County Mayor Ben McAdams should withdraw from the race. And that suggestion had to do with this letter and, the, and this complaint that had, uh, well, or the allegation, I guess, the uh, the investigation the FEC was was conducting. Um, can you explain that, Dan? Why, why is she Can I explain on ben why she asked for Ben McAdams <laughs> to step down? Well, I think it'd be a lot easier for her to get reelected if he did that. That's, <laughs> that's the bottom line. Um, she she claims that he's being unfair and mean unethical. and uh, unethical in his campaigning. And of course, you know she's been campaigning pretty in a pretty tough way too. She criticizes him for a lot of things that the McAdams campaign says are untrue. But I mean, she's pointing to this letter from the FEC and and saying that, um, and then saying that Representative, not Representative, sorry, Salt Lake County Mayor Ben McAdams was being unethical by having criticized her for her campaign uh, fundraising. Is that is that what she's saying? And what was the unethical thing that she's calling Ben McAdams out for? I guess is the question that I'm looking at, looking for. Saying that he's been making unfair allegations against her. Robert Gerke, uh, Salt Lake Tribune columnist. Um, well, I mean, there's, can your take on that part? Well, there's, there's, she's also insinuating that he was colluding with Better uh, Alliance for a Better Utah, which filed a complaint with the FEC against him. And, uh, you know, there's Christine Cantor, who's Josh Cantor's wife. Ben had appointed her to a committee. Uh, she, she, so, so obviously it's, uh, you know, secret combinations kind of deal. Um, the, but the, the problem with that theory is this investigation didn't start with... Uh, Alliance for a Better Utah. Exactly. This was the FEC who initiated this. Hmm. Alliance for a Better Utah subsequently did file a complaint, but the the investigation was initiated by the FEC's own staff, which frankly it doesn't happen all that much. Hmm. The FEC is kind of uh, a pretty a pretty toothless organization typically, um, you know. And and the, the whole allegation that Ben McAdams is behaving unethically, I, I was always under the impression that unethical behavior was sort of a entry to get into Congress, right? You have to be unethical to, to qualify to be in the U.S. House of Representatives. Ben McAdams' campaign came back pretty hard against her, saying, well, did Mia Love behave unethically when she used taxpayer money to fly to a fundraiser? You know, that sort of thing. You know, and, and Mia was saying she had to keep her children away from the television because of these scurrilous attacks against her. I, I just, the the whole thing kind of it feels like a comedy at this point. I mean, it, he, yeah. he's not going to drop out. It's ridiculous to suggest that he would drop out. And, and you know, this is, this is politics, and we've still got a few more weeks left. It's going to get crazy. Hmm. Uh, this race, according to a new Tribune Hinckley Institute poll, is is extremely tied. It's tied essentially, right, Dan? It is essentially tied. Hmm. Um, yeah, actually, just quickly before I move on, I should disclose that KCBW has in the past partnered with Alliance for a Better Utah and uh, the John R. Park Debate Society to host some debates. We've also had legislative updates with Alliance for a Better Utah uh, to make certain that people are aware of that. Can uh, I, yeah, go before ahead. We, before we move, I, I kind of feel like this FEC thing is something that political insiders care about. I'm not sure that 
average voters are going to go out there and say, oh, well, you know, it, it matters. It matters because it reflects on, you know, the way the campaigns are being run. I think for McAdams, it was always kind of useful to every time she hit him with an attack ad could to say, well, she's paying for that attack ad with potentially illegally raised funds. Um, but I, I think there are a lot more uh, important issues in this campaign that people are going to care more about it's than kind of, where they get their money. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that, that Mia Love's campaign, or Mia Love has decided that this is sort of the issue to, the the hill to die on in this campaign. I I kind of baffled by that. Yeah, I mean, during the debate, unless I missed it early in the debate, but during the debate, you know, she kept, it felt like she kept waiting for Ben McAdams to raise this issue, and then he didn't through the entire debate, and she had to drop it in in her closing statement saying that she'd been cleared or exonerated by the FEC. Turns out the next day, the FEC said, well, we didn't do that. And so that was an embarrassing story. It it was embarrassing because she had challenged the media to contact the FEC and said that they would confirm what she'd said, and the FEC wouldn't do that. So you can imagine the phone calls that occurred after that, and then the the following day they end up with this email. So I'm assuming there was some fairly heavy pressure applied to the FEC for that email to to appear. To send an email at all. Um, You know, you mentioned, Robert Gerke, that this isn't necessarily, this is kind of inside baseball, or this is a little bit wonky for for, the majority of voters, and that people aren't going to be turned by by the fundraising stuff, but something that the vast majority of Americans are in favor of is reducing the role of money in politics more generally. And uh, does this speak to that desire from uh, the American public? Perhaps, but I think if you ask ask Americans if they if they care about that, yes. If you ask them to rank it in their priorities of issues that they base their voting on, it's pretty low. Um, And it's a more it's a more compelling issue to I think progressive Democrats than it is to unaffiliated moderates who are the ones who are going to decide this election ultimately. Um, again, if you if if you happen to be one of those handful of people in the 4th District who are undecided, you should go back and watch that debate that happened last week because it really was a lively exchange where they drew some pretty clear distinctions between the two of them. And if you watch that and come away from that still undecided, you probably need to check and make sure you have a pulse because <laughs> it was really, it, it, they those two candidates, there's, there's, there's a gap between them. You understand where they stand on these issues after watching that debate. I think it was. And, and can I just say, so it Dan is Harry. so refreshing to have a competitive race <laughs> in Utah. Well, it does not. Ha- it hasn't happened for a while, well, and uh, it makes the debates more interesting as yeah, well. I mean, there's a lot of nasty campaigning and all that, but it is nice to have a competitive race. Well, Dan, given just how competitive this race is, uh, you know, and both parties are, of course, at the national level vying for control of the U.S. House, is a lot of outside money now flooding into A lot of outside money is now flooding. Hmm. Uh, We've identified at least a million and a half of money that's come from outside groups. Primarily that's come from Paul Ryan's pack, is that right? That's a lot of it, yeah. And then on the Democratic side, there's there's a lot of money now coming in, too. Hmm. So... They're going to be disappointed when Ben drops out of the race for being unethical. <laughs> what happens to all that money when he I drops out? <laughs> I think those stations all keep it. You know, just before we head to our, our first break of the show, um, we talked about the Tribune-Hinkley Institute poll that showed this virtual tie in the race. Uh, something else that poll looked at, Dan, was support for Prop 2, the uh, medical marijuana initiative. Support for that initiative um, has been dropping. Of course, there's also a, an outside legisl- or a separate legislative deal that will occur in advance of 
uh, well, in November at some point, a special a special session of the legislature. How far has uh, support been dropping? Yeah, I was quite surprised because most polls have showed that uh, pretty steady. Uh, it it actually began up in the seventy percentile uh, support, but it it's remained steady at about uh, in the sixties for a long time, you know, mid to upper 60s uh, support. But our polls showed that the support now had eroded down to about 51% and uh, was close to the opposition, around 46%. And the the primary reason for that, almost it looks like the sole reason for that was active LDS. Hmm. Their support for it had been halved in just a very short time. And that was, you know, with the church coming in, opposing the initiative, and then backing this uh, compromise draft legislation that uh, lawmakers promised to come in after the election and, and pass. Uh, Robert Gerke, your, your thoughts on how that deal plays into this initiative and the waning support for it. But, uh, you know, as we head into election and also what the initiative still means, uh, if anything. Yeah, I mean, I... I... I don't think it's too surprising to see that, especially among LDS uh, voters, that their support goes away because they, you know, they they had probably always been grappling with this issue of their faith opposing it, and you know that they want to be, you know, loyal to their leadership, and and but they also wanted medical marijuana. Now they see a, a way to do both, mm-hmm. um, and so it, it, that. That decision, that that tough decision that they were being forced to make, kind of went away, and so they don't have to vote for Prop Two anymore. I kind of see it differently, frankly, because I feel like if if Prop Two doesn't pass, uh, I, I feel like Prop Two passing is the only way that you're going to be able to hold those leaders who've committed to passing this compromise legislation accountable and and force force their hand, keep the heat on them. Um, if it fails, then you could also see the the support for the compromise kind of go away. Now, Governor Herbert, Speaker Hughes. Others have made very strong commitments that they are going to pass this in a November special session, this compromise legislation. But I think there still needs to be a, a, a public, uh, you know, pronouncement, I guess, of the, a mandate from the public that yes, we want this to happen, and you know, they're not, we're not going to take no for an well, answer. Well, they're not, a, they're not opposed to changing the terms of the legislation right. that they've created either. Which right. is, uh, and I, I agree with Robert. I mean, I think if that fails at the ballot. Uh, you lose a lot of momentum for uh, the legislature to act on this. Uh, you know what? What all of a sudden is the necessity to pass something if the voters have turned it down? T minus two and a half weeks to election day, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this topic uh, again before we get there. Right now, though, we need to head to our first break of the show. When we come back, the petition by four Utah women to the state Supreme Court asking for a special prosecutor in their sexual assault cases. This is Behind the Headlines here on KCPW and Utah Public Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The radio is your ticket and music your passport for a journey of the imagination through myths, legends and mysteries in ballads and tunes from Celtic roots. I hope you'll come along with me for the Thistle and Shamrock. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. This week on Undisciplined, we're talking about the way people and animals move from place to place. First, we'll talk to Rick Geddes about a new idea for reducing traffic. Then we'll chat with Lori Spears about how to keep non-native insects out of North America. 
the transportation economist, and the insect ecologist. That's Undisciplined, Friday at 2. Welcome back to Behind the Headlines. I'm Roger McDonough with KCPW, and I am joined this hour by Salt Lake Tribune Managing Editor Sheila McCann, News and Politics Editor Dan Harry, and Columnist Robert Gerke. This is our Friday morning news roundup, and you can join us with your questions and comments by calling 801-355-8255 or posting them at the Behind the Headlines page at sltrib.com. Salt Lake Tribune Managing Editor Sheila McCann, an article in the Tribune this week told the story of four Utah women who brought allegations of sexual assault to the Salt Lake County District Attorney's Office uh, only to have their cases not taken up by DA Sim Gill or his lawyers. And so these women are taking an unusual step to try to get justice. What are they uh, what are they doing, Sheila? So these are four women who reported their sexual assaults to police that we know they're in the minority by doing that. They came through a variety of situations that the women described, a student studying with another student, a teenage student, a woman getting a massage, a student who was volunteering and studying with the Provo Police Department, and a woman who was approached by a former coworker. All of these women did make the decision to go to police, cooperated with an investigation. Police brought their cases to the DA's office seeking charges. And in each of these cases, the DA's office decided not to file charges. Hmm. They, we, oh, in, in some cases, they asked for subsequent meetings, asked for reviews of that decision, both by Sim Gill's office and by the Attorney General's office. No charges have been filed. So with the help of a University of Utah law professor, Paul Cassell, and other attorneys, they have filed a petition in the Utah Supreme Court asking the Supreme Court to appoint a special prosecutor to bring their cases to court. Is that something that the Supreme Court can even do, appoint a special prosecutor? I, I, I've not heard of it happening before. It's an interesting question. The petition points out that in Utah's original constitution, there was a clause that said if a county attorney failed or declined to bring a case, to prosecute a case, the district courts had the authority to appoint a special prosecutor to do that. Hmm. And the research that these lawyers did showed them that this either never happened or very rarely happened. In 1984, the Constitution was amended. That power was transferred to the Utah Supreme Court. There is a sense that maybe this has never happened. But looking at the issue of underreporting, underprosecution of sexual assault, this could be a route for victim-initiated prosecutions, which the petition says were a thing in the early days of America. All right, going back all the way to 1896 and the founding of the state. Um, but you know. Before we get too far into this unique petition, can we uh, talk about why, if we even know why, uh, Sheila, these women had their cases rejected by uh, the district attorney's office? Do we do we know why the cases were rejected or they're, um, they weren't brought to court by the DA? So this is a large petition. It's over 150 pages. And Simgill's office didn't have the full version of that before it was filed. So they did not immediately explain why each of these cases um, didn't lead to charges. In the petition, some of the women say they were told there were problems with evidence. They were told that the office couldn't get a conviction. Um, so we have some of that. In one case, the case of the teenager, they provided the declination letter from the office. And it essentially said there was a problem here with cons consent, that the young woman perhaps didn't signal her lack of consent in a way that the young man would have seen. It was reasonable to believe he may not have seen that she was not consenting. They felt they couldn't get a conviction on that case. So having the letter, we have a pretty specific reason in that case. Right. 
The others we don't. Um, and again, this was a lot of information. They haven't immediately responded to the decisions in each of those four cases. When a prosecutor rejects a case, uh, you know, when the district attorney uh, says, "I'm, you know, we're not taking this up," that's kind of the end of of the story. Usually, I mean, th- th- that's um, <laughs> that's where a, a case will stop, and that's why this petition is so unusual by these women uh, to find this this other way around. And that's what Professor Cassell says is that's a problem that women have one place to go. They have the county prosecutor's office to go. If that office says no. There's nowhere for them to go. They can ask the AG's office for review. Two of them did. In one case, um, the family of the student was asking for that decision to not charge be reviewed. Prosecutors have a lot of discretion. These are their decisions to make. And the AG's office decided that Simgill's office had not abused its discretion in not going forward. In the other case, the woman says that she hasn't heard back from the AG's office. So that's one route. But it's not a route that a lot of people take. It's probably fairly unusual. Hmm. And the argument is, this is important. This is a way for women, who are mostly the victims of sexual assault, to get their cases to court in a system that under-prosecutes these cases. Why are those cases under-prosecuted? I mean, is it that that prosecutors don't think they can get a conviction, you know, whether or not they have the evidence they need? I mean, oftentimes, I'm sure that, as as uh, I'm sure the DA would say, that they don't have the, the evidence necessary to convict. but. Is it also that it's very difficult to get uh, convictions in these cases? So there's several groups, local and national, that have signed on to this petition. And they say that that is part of the problem, that these are tough cases to bring, but that there's a lot of mythology around sexual assault that is still influencing prosecutors' decisions. Um, An attitude that looks very carefully at a victim's conduct, at a victim's actions, at a victim's words, rather than focusing on the conduct of the perpetrator. And ideas that make these cases hard to get convictions, they're saying those need to be challenged and women need a route to get these arguments into court. I, I mean, maybe this is a question for Robert Gerke, but is it also that uh, the jury, you know, a jury is not going to side with um, that in, you know, th- this is maybe the mythology that uh, Sheila's pointing to, but mm-hmm. the, the mythology that we have is that, or the sort of concept that we have is that a jury doesn't convict in, in, in rape cases very often. Right. I think, I think, I, well, I'm not sure how, if, if juries convict that often, but there there is, there is a problem when you have to convince convince a jury that we have beyond a reasonable doubt that this occurred and it was non-consensual and you know and, and, and Sheila mentioned prosecutors do tend to look at the conduct of the victim which is which is unfortunate but you can bet that when you get into court that the defense attorney is going to definitely present the conduct of the victim as an extenuating circumstance to try to get their client off so you have to look at the potential defenses that somebody is going to be putting up there you know I think these cases are I mean, for a prosecutor, maybe some of the hardest calls that they have to make in terms of whether they right. go forward or not, because you you are sometimes presented, you sometimes don't have the evidence you would like to have, you sometimes don't have the, the fact set that you would like to have, but you still want to do right by the victim, you still want to try to get the victim justice, but sometimes that's not going to happen, and you have to be, be honest with the family and with the victim that, that there's that there's no way you're going to get a conviction, and that's got to be hard. I totally get why these women are very upset, and I think that, you know, as I wrote today, I think that they should have 
an avenue for appeal. They can go to the Attorney General's office, like you said. And Sheila mentioned there were two cases that went to the Attorney General's office. And the one I was told yesterday by the AG's office is on the on the, on the the desk of the guy who's reviewing it. They're still waiting for some information. And I don't know if it's from the DA's office or from the investigator, but they're still waiting for the complete file on that one. So that one's still in the process. There's the option of going to a grand jury, which I think, frankly, seems like a... a, a a very difficult process for an average victim to undertake. Sure. But so I, I, I support the, this notion of trying to get a, another set of eyes on these to review these because you do want to make the right decision. And if I just, if sure, I could. Of course, go ahead, Robert. They've, the, I, when I spoke with the DA's office, they said they've looked at three of these cases, you know, gone back and been able, able to find three of the four cases that were in the petition. Uh, there's one case they still haven't been able to identify. They don't know the name of the victim, and so they can't, they haven't been able to identify that one. In, in all three of those, they have been able to find it wasn't just one prosecutor who was making the decision or one prosecutor and the supervisor. In some instances, it was up to a dozen mm. prosecutors who looked at these cases and said, we can't prosecute this case. And so they're, they are difficult. They have, they're, they're never tidy. And, and if they were tidy, you would definitely see a lot more of prosecutions. And so it's a, it's a very difficult issue. And, and, and it gets, unfortunately, because of the timing of it, it, it looks fairly political. Well, and this is something that, that Sim Gill pointed out in the reporting that was done, is that he questioned the timing of this petition by these women to go to the Supreme Court uh, because the election is so close and he is standing for re-election. Um, and there were others in the article who who questioned uh, the, the very notion of a special prosecutor for cases like these. Who would be in control of that? Is that right, Sheila? Who would be who would be sort of overseeing the special prosecutor? This is something we're talking about at the federal level as well, of course. How would it work? Who would pay for it? Uh, would Professor Cassell and these attorneys be appointed in this case? Would someone independent be appointed? Would the AG be appointed? Since this isn't a route people have been using, no one knows what the logistics would be. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had a defense attorney ask, is this fair if most defendants have their cases reviewed or potential defendants have their cases reviewed by a district attorney's office, a decision is made, and then perhaps it ends there? Um, is it fair to have some victims who have resources and connections be able to get that case reviewed again? So they felt like there was a fairness question. Essentially, be able to be able to hire a lawyer to take this to the Supreme to take this petition to the Supreme Court. And that was one of Sim Gill's questions as well: is Is this a route that is only really going to be available to victims who have money, who have connections, who can get themselves there? Well, and that's why I feel pretty strongly that short, short of a special prosecutor, I, I don't think the special prosecutor is the best route going forward. I think for in this instance, it might be a feasible route. But ultimately, I think the legislature needs to provide an avenue for these appeals that everybody can have access to and not just people who have Paul Cassell, a former federal judge, representing them before the Utah Supreme Court. That shouldn't be the ordinary process for these cases to go forward. Sheila, does it matter that they've lumped these cases together in this petition? I mean, there's there's no unifying factor other than the fact that the cases were rejected by the district attorney's office. Um, Presumably, there are other cases that were also rejected by the district attorney's office that didn't show up in this petition. They use these cases and statistics to make their point that this is an under-prosecuted crime, that there is a pattern nationally, and they would argue in Sim Gill's office of cases not being prosecuted, that they think they think they have probable cause in these cases, they think they're good cases, they think they should be filed. Okay. When will we, you know, when will the state Supreme Court consider this petition and uh, decide? Do, do we know that? Uh, that's a... 
reading the tea leaves? Who knows? I do not know. This is a brand new type of petition, so we'll just have to see. Okay. Uh, SLTrip.com is the place to go for this reporting. It's a pretty interesting and novel thing. Um, that is happening. And so check it out at sltrip.com. Dan Harry, just before we head to a break and then to our underplayed stories uh, to save time for a feature at the end of the show, I want to turn to one more article from uh, this week's news. It has to do with the effort uh, to tackle homelessness here in Salt Lake City yeah. uh, called Operation Rio Grande. The ACLU of Utah in reporting uh, this week or in a report this week that is criticizes the effort uh, because they say that it had the wrong priorities. Um, despite what it purported to be doing. Can you tell us about this report, Dan? Yeah, they described Operation Rio Grande as a hammer, that it uh, was uh, very heavy on law enforcement but not on treatment, and they said that that formula was very much out of whack. Uh, they gave some numbers that were pretty convincing, 5,000 arrests during Operation Rio Grande, hmm. which has been going on just a little over a year. And 243 new treatment beds opened up. So you can see the disparity there. Obviously, those are never going to be equal. But by that huge gap, it, it does make you question, you know, what this was all about. There's a quote from the report that the ACLU released, or maybe this is from a spokesperson actually from the ACLU that says, being homeless is not a crime, yet thousands of individuals living in or frequenting the Rio Grande neighborhood were detained, jailed, and released with no additional help, and the added bur burden of warrants, fines, and a criminal record. Um, they, you know, there was also a spokesperson who said that ramping up law enforcement is easier than getting treatment beds uh, exactly, online, yeah. and that, that, not necessarily cheaper, but easier because it's you, easier. Yeah. You you have those resources available. You know, it's something you can. If there's a political will to do it, it can be done, and it can be done relatively quickly. Whereas if you're talking about counselors and treatment beds, you know that's a long process that uh, that can't be done overnight. Well, and that's, I mean, this is, okay, so House Speaker Greg Hughes was one of the architects of uh, mm -hmm. Operation Rio Grande, and he responded to this report um, pointing to that sort of long process, and he was proud, essentially, of what had been accomplished. Well, he was proud, and he was upset that he was being criticized. Uh, this is a, a, a matter of pride for Ben McAdams and Spencer Wait, Cox. Greg and... Hughes was upset at being criticized? <laughs> I cannot believe that. That is, that I is mean, shocking. Robert you know... Greg. Um, we've had so many press conferences where the architects of this get up and talk about what a success it's been, and it doesn't seem like anybody's kind of felt emboldened to criticize it, although these criticisms are obviously out there. Robert Gerke, uh noble intentions uh, on the part of, of these leaders who were trying to get something done, but was the focus maybe in the wrong place, 5,000 arrests? Uh, it's, I mean, it's a complicated issue, isn't it? I mean, I think if you go down to Rio Grande uh, or Pioneer Park anytime in the last year, you've seen a drastic change down there in the, in a pretty significant change in the, in the, you made a face at me. Oh, no, no, sorry. Uh, I, was, I was making a face at the clock. Go on. We've got, uh, got a limited you've amount seen, of time you've here, seen a pretty You've seen a pretty significant change down there. And, and, and you know, so, so yes, the law enforcement component of it has worked. But I think, as we pointed out when we did our anniversary stories about Operation Rio Grande, I think the treatment is, is 
come is been a little bit slow coming online because it does take a while to ramp up and it takes a lot of money to ramp that up. I think the hardest part that they're going to be grappling with for the, the next year and a half is going to be the housing part of it um, because the way to end homelessness is get people in homes. It's a no-brainer. And so, yes, the law enforcement part has been easy and, and maybe too much of the focus until now, but I think... Prior to Operation Rio Grande, we were seeing sort of this treading water, and we weren't seeing any changes down there. So I'm sorry that we have to leave it there just because of time. But uh, Robert Gerke, thank you very much for your comments on that. Uh, check out the reporting on this at sltrip.com. Right now, we need to take another quick break. And when we come back, we will turn to our underplayed stories of the week and then a feature with Eric Peterson, founder of the Utah Investigative Journalism Project. This is Behind the Headlines. We'll be right back. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Wasserman Festival, presenting jazz pianist Helen Sung with Corey Christiansen, Philip Kuhn, and James White, Saturday, October 27th at 7.30 p.m. in the Russell Wallace Performance Hall. More information at usu.edu slash Wasserman. What percent of the food in American supermarkets do you actually think is food. The definition of food is something that sustains and nourishes. Yeah. And nourishment is something that increases your health. So 40% of the stuff in American supermarkets wouldn't qualify as food. Wait, 40% wouldn't qualify as food? Right. How we connect with our food? That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Bronson Tigert, an agriculture, business, and economics reporter for Utah Public Radio. I want to bring UPR listeners in-depth stories from the agricultural, business, and economics world. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us at the station. Welcome back to Behind the Headlines. I'm Roger McDonough with KCPW Public Radio, joined by the Salt Lake Tribune's Sheila McCann, Dan Harry, and Robert Gerke. And uh, we'll now turn to our underplayed stories to save time for a recorded feature. And Sheila McCann, do you want to kick us off with a, uh, an underplayed story of the week? Sure. Instead of underplayed, how about not fully played out? There is a lot of information in that petition that the women have filed to the Utah Supreme Court that needs exploring. They claim that there has been a surge in sexual assault reports. Hmm. They ask why has there not been a corresponding surge in charges. They raise other issues with rape prosecutions. And then there's also the question if women are feeling their cases are not being brought forward when they should in this county, what about other counties? So there's a lot more here to explore. Okay. Definitely a lot more to explore, and uh, the Tribune will be following it, I'm sure. Robert Gerke, have you got one ready, underplayed story? Well, I mean, if you paid attention to the University of Utah football team, you probably saw that they lost probably the best recruit the school's ever had. Jack Tuttle, who is a freshman court, redshirt quarterback, is going to be leaving the school, and it's a big blow to, blow to the football program, and Gordon Monson teases out some of the who's to blame kind of uh, angle of it in today's paper. Okay. Check that out at sltrip.com as well, or in your morning paper. Dan Harry, your Prop for three, the uh, full expansion of Medicaid. Uh, we finally saw legislators who fought this for years come out the other day to a press conference and formally oppose it. And uh, Senator Jake Anderig made a comment that is memorable that he doesn't care if it passes. The voters, the vote is not sacrosanct that he will, if it passes, immediately introduce legislation to over to overturn this. Wow. Whether or not the, the people of Utah are behind it. So if you live in Jake exactly Andrews' right. district, go vote against him and show him how sacrosanct the vote is. <laughs> 
Robert Gerke, uh, opinion columnist, uh, <laughs> closing us out there on that. Uh, I'll go with the closing of the New Yorker restaurant after 40 years for my uh, pick for underplayed story. Uh, another sort of landmark in Salt Lake City, like Lamb's Cafe or Bill and Nada's, uh, except for it's really nothing like those places now that I think about it. Um, Actually the opposite yeah, of Bill and Nada's. Right, to- totally the opposite of Bill and Nada's. Uh, I-, I never ate there, to tell you the truth. So, um, I, you know, I couldn't afford it. Uh, <laughs> Sheila McCann, Dan Harry, and Robert Gerke, thank you all very much for being here uh, on Behind the Headlines. Thank you. Thank Have a good you. week. For the remainder of the show, we are going to turn to a conversation that I had with Eric Peterson, founder of the Utah Investigative Journalism Project. Peterson's two-part series on a cold case murder from the late 1970s appeared in the Tribune this week. Eric Peterson with the Utah Investigative Journalism Project, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Your reporting on the cold case murder of Anthony Adams appeared in the Salt Lake Tribune this week. Uh, It was a murder that occurred in 1978. This is 40 years ago. Who was Anthony Adams? Anthony Adams, uh, he was an interesting figure. Um, In some ways, he's kind of a figure as worried might be kind of lost to history, I guess you could say, um, because he was prominent in in Salt Lake City, but for a short period of time, uh, he was an activist and he was involved in, you know, what you would call radical politics back in 1978. and a variety of, of different causes. Uh, he was involved in racial justice issues, advocating for gay rights. He's a socialist. Uh, and he himself was definitely a figure a little bit outside of the mainstream uh, here. He's, he's gay, black, and a socialist. Um, right. You wrote that he was an activist. Uh, he was a member of the NAACP. He also pressured the University of Utah to divest its stock of companies that operated in apartheid era South Africa. Um, a high profile in 1970s Salt Lake City for a, a radical activist. Uh, tell us the circumstances of his murder, Eric. Yeah, well, it was uh, the weekend right before the election of 1978, and uh, Anthony actually was a campaign worker um, for a man who's running for Congress for the Socialist Workers Party of Utah. And he was supposed to show up at a rally that Sunday, uh, and he never turned up. Some other fellow campaign workers came to find him the following day, uh, came to the apartment door, find it was just open just a bit. It was just uh, a jar, a few inches, uh, went inside and unfortunately found Adams inside. He was naked. He had been uh, stabbed repeatedly. Uh, and that's where this kind of, this all began. I guess there was immediate uproar. There was immediate concern in the activist community, especially uh, the timing of it and how Adams, you know, had put himself uh, front and center at some very controversial issues for, you know, uh, the time and place. And, you know, there was immediately a concern among the community that, you know, you know, was this a hate crime? Was this a political assassination? And if it wasn't and it was just a crime of passion or a robbery gone bad, you know, how come it couldn't get solved, you know, and that's the question people are still asking 40 years later. You dug up the story that was published in the in the newsletter, The Militant, which was the Socialist Workers Party of Utah newsletter, and it made some pretty strong allegations relating to Adams and his death and, and, and his murder, that it was political assassination, essentially, right? I mean, I think there was that, that concern, and, you know, with, uh, with Adams uh, at that time, there's a lot of interesting things going on. Um, 
you know, besides the kind of the political causes he was involved in, uh, he also kind of had like a an interesting confrontation, I guess you could say, with the city and the police that occurred about six months prior to his murder. He'd actually been arrested by uh, undercover vice officers. And they 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 had uh, charged him with uh, uh, sex solicitation uh, that he was acting as a prostitute and you know and you know according to some of those police reports I saw they supposedly ha- had good evidence they had tape recorded it was a sting that went down and he was arrested uh, Adams never pled out on it he did not take a deal he did not plead guilty and he was prepared to go to trial. The trial got dismissed at the very last minute, October 31st. Uh, it was totally dismissed. You know, they, they dropped everything they had against him. And, you know, a week later, he was killed. Hmm. Um, why did his case go cold? I mean, you've got uh, members of the activist and gay community um, saying that his murder wasn't properly investigated at the time. And, you know, at the beginning of your article, you write about the graffiti that scrawled around downtown Salt Lake City at the time saying, who killed Anthony Adams? Well, I can't remember the exact phrase. Yeah, who killed Anthony Adams? Yeah. Uh, but it just didn't get addressed and they, they didn't come up with a suspect and it went away. Is that, the, is that the gist of it? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to look at that. On the one hand, it's it's hard for me sometimes to look back uh, and try and, you know, just, you know, indict the investigation that happened so long ago and you know, I was able to find a lot of good sources, people active in it, look at, you know, primary documents, but still hard to understand, like, what was really happening on the ground. But what, you know, I think my research did uncover is that, you know, unfortunately, politics really did get involved in this investigation. I mean, it's interesting to note that there was at one point in the investigation, police were actually started to investigate the murder of another gay man that happened the same month and there was a sketch involved and they had a photo of a suspect and so they wanted to see if it was a possibility that you know this person might have killed Anthony and so they tried to show a picture to some members of the socialist workers party and the socialist workers party asked to take a copy of the picture so they could show all their membership uh, and the police responded by saying, no, why don't you give us your membership list and then we can contact all your members and then, you know, interview them separately. And so you can see immediately how some friction happened right, right. there. Hand over your radical organization roster to the cops. Right. Yeah. And, and right after, you know, and this was in the, you know, the tumult of, of the socialists and other activists mm-hmm. being very vocal about demanding an investigation and getting to the bottom of it. Salt Lake City Police Department has reopened this case. It's among a number of cold cases that they have reopened. Uh, This happened not that long ago. Uh, Has their investigation turned anything new up? Do they have a theory on how Adams died? Uh, You know, there was an interesting development that that did come up uh, late 2000s, actually, um, and that... You know, our story that appeared in the, the Tribune that we we did was kind of the first to report on an interesting lead, um, but still kind of one that perhaps raises more questions than answers. And that was that they had actually, you know, found a, a, a partial fingerprint in Adam's apartment. At the time, they couldn't really identify it. And technology, I guess, had uh, developed, you know, the late 2000s, that they were actually able to get a hit on it. And it was a woman, and she's named uh, Mickey Henson. And so they wondered, you know, did she have some involvement? You know, uh, did she know the killers? Was she involved in the killing? 
Uh, you know, but I had actually was able to get in touch with some of the family of Mickey, who, who had actually passed away, uh, also late 2000s. And and it still seems like a kind of a confusing lead. She didn't appear to actually be somebody that really would be a part of like some gang or something like that. I mean, that was part of the police's theories that maybe this was a group of people that would target gay individuals to rob them, you know, knowing that they're a vulnerable group. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the picture you get from kind of the family of Mickey, you know, that she was, she was kind of like a rebellious kind of wild child, but she wasn't like a, a street criminal per se. Mm. Eric, in part two of your series, you write about the evidence that is missing, not just in the Anthony Adams case, but in other Salt Lake City uh, cold cases. But just to begin with, what's the evidence that's missing from Anthony Adams' murder case? It's supposed to be the murder weapon. So pretty critical piece of evidence missing there. That had been gathered by the police and then went missing since it was picked up by them at the time of the murder? Right. And it's an interesting story. And... uh, I had actually reached a point about the beginning of this year where I was actually going to the state records committee. Uh, for people who aren't aware of it, this is kind of like a body you go and you, if you're having a dispute with a government agency over records, you kind of meet and there's a committee you kind of present arguments before you rebut the other side's arguments. And I, I was actually approaching the state records committee asking for. Uh, more parts of the police file to be released. You know, my my big point was, you know, it's been 40 years. Uh, I understand the police wants to protect parts of this because they say it's still an active investigation. But I was kind of just challenging them on that and saying, you know, like after how many decades is a case still active? So I think releasing more of the report might be helpful to the investigation, you know, if it if it helps, you know, generate new leads. Well, right before the state records committee happened, the police actually went to the media and put out kind of a, a, a plea for help. They said, you know, you know what? We're actually missing evidence uh, from the Adams case. And actually from they said the, the original number was 20 cold case homicides from that era. And what they had said was, you know, there's kind of this mix up somehow and that evidence was sent to a lab at the U. And they never got it back. This is at the University of Utah. University of Utah, yeah. Yeah. There was a lab there that's not around there anymore. And this was the system that was in place before the state crime lab uh, really came online in the early 80s. And so, you know, at the state records committee, the police said, you know, this is an active investigation. We just put out this plea for help and uh, hoping to get tips on that. Your request was denied. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Then, you know, I continued investigating and, uh, you know, was was actually only recently within the last month or so after, you know, a lot of questions about inconsistencies and issues I was seeing and, you know, in what parts of the reports I had that, you know, the police acknowledged, they said, you know what, that number, 20 cases, we don't actually know for sure if it was 20 cases. They said it could be 20 or it could be zero cases. Um, that this lab at the U had lost evidence. So they actually don't know if this lab at the U is responsible for evidence going missing. And that's, I mean, that brings us to another interesting point, which is that you reached out to people who had been involved at this lab at the University of Utah, and they say, at least in the case of the Anthony Adams evidence, which would be a knife, they never handled that kind of evidence, right? Right. To be fair, I can see how it's confusing and you can see how it was kind of like a really ad hoc kind of system set up before we had a state crime lab. They might send ballistics to Weber State, 
this lab at the U was primarily about toxicology, but they didn't really handle like a physical evidence, like a murder weapon. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there was some confusion about that. And, you know, in talking to people, you know, not only a detective who worked the Adams case, but the old director of this lab that used to be at the U, and a lot of the sources were involved in the process back then, back almost 40 years ago, it, I, I begin to get a picture that this doesn't make sense that this lab would actually be able to lose evidence that they really wouldn't be holding on to in the first place. Hmm. You know, in your article, you write about evidence missing from murder cases uh, from a six-year window in Salt Lake City. This is 1978 to 1984. A unifying factor in several of the murder cases from that time period uh, where this evidence is missing is that the victims were all gay. Yeah. Um, does that suggest anything to you, somebody who's been looking into this for a while, or is it coincidence? Um, what can you say about that, Eric? It's, I mean, it's it's hard to speculate. I mean, it could just be a really tragic coincidence. But you can also see how it's the kind of thing that just kind of adds, you know, uh, fans the flames of paranoia among the gay community at that time who already felt like the police weren't actually protecting them or investigating crimes committed against them. And, you know, all those cases were were really troubling. Um, and they all actually happened within pretty close of one another. Um, you know, Anthony Adams killed at the beginning of November. One is shot at the end of November. Uh, and then the third one I mentioned in the story, Mona Ulibari, she's killed in April. So several months later. Um, but, you know, the this select pieces of critical evidence actually just have gone missing in those cases. And all of those uh, were cold cases for a period of time. I mean, they, they're essentially unsolved murders. Correct. Yeah. And it, the, the, the Mona Ulibari case is particularly troubling, especially in terms of accounting for the evidence, because it, it appears as if she was le she was raped before the murder happened. And it makes reference to uh, a semen sample that was collected, sent, uh, you know, to the medical examiners. The medical examiners confirmed it was semen, sent it back to the police department, and now it's not accounted for. Mm -hmm. And there's a possibility that there is a DNA sample um, that could likely be put into some kind of database and get a hit. Mm -hmm. um, but where it's at, you know... The records seem to indicate at least that last time it settled somewhere, it was with the police department. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry that we don't have more time to dig into a few of the details uh, in this story. It's really compelling reporting that you can find at sltrip.com. A question that I do have before we wrap up is, are we any closer to solving uh, the murder? And do you have any theories yourself, Eric, about what happened to Anthony Adams? In terms of theories, yeah, it probably wouldn't be appropriate for me to sure. to to say one hunch or another. But it is really interesting to look at how the evidence, you know, is not so clear cut. And I will say this, you know, the police have long maintained that from the very beginning that this was not a hate crime and not motivated by politics. There must have been a robbery gone bad or, you know, maybe some kind of intimate partner kind of violence. And you know, what, what we'll say is, you know, based on the research, is that that's that's not that's not a hundred percent. I don't I don't think that's a guaranteed theory. Um, you know, there are some things you take into consideration, like the possibility, like was this a robbery gone bad? How does a robbery go so bad that the robber panics and stabs somebody? You know, 
seven times. You know, it it would be one thing like if if somebody burst into his apartment, had a gun, got nervous or something, and accidentally shot him. That that's a robbery gone bad. It's hard to understand how it goes so bad to commit such drastic violence on another human being. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's also the question of, you know, could it have been something from somebody, you know, maybe a, a, a boyfriend or somebody that maybe he had met somewhere at a bar, perhaps, because there was some evidence to suggest that, that Adams might have been about to become intimate. You know, he he was naked and there was other evidence to suggest that as well. Hmm. Then again, like I mentioned before, there's just a lot of strange other political uh, timing of things happening that also just kind of turn up the dial on the paranoia on that front as well. As might the fact that uh, some of the evidence is missing. I uh, Eric Peterson, it's really interesting reporting. And uh, again, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us about it. How can people find you and your organization and the reporting that you do? Uh, we have a website. Uh, it's the Utah Investigative Journalism Project. And it's utahinvestigative.org. Thanks again for coming in. Thank you. Again, that's Eric Peterson, founder of the Utah Investigative Journalism Project, whose two-part series on the cold case murder of Anthony Adams appeared in the Salt Lake Tribune this week. Wrapping up this edition of Behind the Headlines, uh, this show is a co-production of KCPW and the Salt Lake Tribune and is heard across the state on Utah Public Radio. Many thanks to everyone who helps make the show possible, including Jesse Ellis here at KCPW, the team at Utah Public Radio in Logan, and our show's producer, Emily Means. You can find podcasts at kcpw.org or through your podcast app. Coming up next on KCPW Presents is a documentary looking at first-generation college students a decade later. This is from American Public Media. It follows the story of two people who were the first in their families to go to college with the odds stacked against them. Thanks again for joining us here on Behind the Headlines. I'm Roger McDonough. Have a great weekend. Remember when Twin Peaks debuted on TV? It was like a supernova went off and it suddenly became the thing that everybody needed to see. The show's co-creator, Mark Frost, talks about his new Twin Peaks novel, and pie. Plus, George Saunders on his Booker Prize-winning novel about Lincoln and ghosts. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday morning from 9 to 11 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra presents War and the Human Heart, songs of battle, loss, and love, recognizing the 100th year of the Armistice. Saturday, November 3rd, 7.30 p.m. in the USU Danes Concert Hall. Tickets at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.